0: Please turn with me to Genesis chapter three. Last week we started this series on faith and work and from the emails and conversations uh, of this last week, it's been clear that this topic of work is one that uh, is resonating deeply with so many in the church. Uh, I want to say I have so much joy Uh, because of you as a church, because of the way you eagerly receive and apply God's Word to your life. We don't just sing, my life is an offering. What is clear to me as a pastor is that you view your life as an offering of praise to the Lord. And you have given the whole of your life to Him, including your vocation. And it brings me so much joy, and I love you, and I thank God for you. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19, but I'd like to begin reading in verse 14. This is God's holy and authoritative word. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our sermon title is A World of Toil. May God bless the preaching of his word. There's an episode of the old TV show, The Wonder Years, that addresses the theme of work. Season 1, Episode 3, it's called My Father's Office. And that particular episode begins with the kids uh, sitting at the kitchen table as their dad is at work, and there's a nature documentary voiceover. It says, while the mother remains with the young, the male ventures into a hostile environment to find sustenance. And then there's a shot of a documentary of gorillas. And it continues. He returns after an unsuccessful foray, aggressive and unpredictable. And then we see a close-up of a gorilla, and then immediately the sounds of screeching tires in the driveway as Jack, the dad, is home. And the, the nature documentary voice continues. Notice the reaction of the startled mother, and we see Norma, the mom, and her offspring. And then they cut to Kevin and Wayne, as they begin, uh, note the reaction of the mother and her offspring as they begin to sense the presence of the male. And then the scene continues, Uh, Jack comes into the kitchen, wife sweetly asks how work went, he mumbles, works, work. And then the voiceover, the irritable male gives out unmistakable signals that tell the young to keep their distance. (laughs) And throughout the, the episode, which really does focus on this theme of work, Kevin Arnold, uh, the the boy, the young man, learns about what work is like for his dad at NORCOM. He goes with him to the office, and he discovers that that our dream jobs, because there's these scenes where uh, they're talking about what they want to do, he's talking with his friends, what what do you want to do when you grow up? Kevin discovers that our dream jobs are often much different than where life takes us. And he learns just how uh, difficult, how miserable work can be. And he learns about the lifelong battle for contentment in our work. Many working people can relate to the opening lines of the song, Five O'Clock World by the Vogues. Up every morning just to keep a job, I got to fight my way through the hustling mob. Sounds of the city pounding in my brain while another day goes down the drain. A world of toil. Now, what is work? Uh, Work has been defined as the expenditure of physical and mental energy to produce sustenance and culture. The expenditure of physical and mental energy in order to produce sustenance, and culture. Genesis 1 and 2, as we saw last week, uh, teach that we are created to work, that work is not a result of the fall. Genesis 3, however, teaches that all work has been profoundly affected by the fall. God's good design for human work has been corrupted by the curse, and we experience that not just on occasion, but every single day of our lives. We all know through our own experience of work that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. But most people in the world today uh, know know the challenges of work, but they can't tell you and they do not understand how things got this way, nor do they understand the way forward. And hope and help can only come when we understand the problem. And the Bible's answer, God's answer to how things got this way is sin. Sin. God told Adam in Genesis 2, 17 that if he ate of the fruit of a particular tree, he would surely die. God was saying, I want you to love me. I want you to trust me. I want you to obey me for your good and for my glory. And Adam and Eve instead put themselves in the place of God, becoming like God and deciding for themselves what right and wrong will be, as so many people do to this very day. We have all rejected divine authority. We have all rejected divine affection. We have defied God's authority and we have doubted His love. That's every one of us. The curse of Genesis 3, in the passage we read, is the result of this cosmic rebellion against the God who made us. And this is the reason that the world is the way it is, and it's the reason your life is the way it is. The curse touches everything. Profoundly altering our experience of life in this world. Al Walters in his book, Creation Regained, says this. The Bible teaches plainly that Adam and Eve's fall into sin was not just an isolated act of disobedience, but an event of catastrophic significance for creation as a whole. The effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall, no created thing. Whether we look at societal structures such as the state or family or cultural pursuits such as art or technology or bodily functions such as sexuality or eating or anything at all within the wide scope of creation we discover that the good handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of mutiny against God. All of creation, all that has been made, has been affected by this fall into sin. And you can see, therefore, how this passage is so profoundly relevant to our modern lives to our everyday lives. Tim Keller says Genesis 3 is an ancient text filled with rich theology in narrative form, but it could not be more relevant and practical to life today. It goes for the jugular as if to say, do you find, think about this, do you find the two great tasks in life, love and work, to be excruciatingly hard? This explains why. This is making sense of your life. This is explaining why this world and why your life is the way it is. And this, by the way, parenthetical comment, and the most important thing I will say today, this is why every one of us needs the salvation that Jesus Christ alone can bring. Why is love excruciatingly hard? Why is work excruciatingly hard? Because we live in a world in which the entire world is groaning under the effects of the fall. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came into this world to deal with that very problem. He came to take the sin of the world upon Himself in His death and to roll back all the effects of the fall through His resurrection, through His future return, to the benefit of all who trust in Him alone for salvation. We have a Savior. And Genesis 3.15, in fact, which is why I wanted to read earlier, speaks of this one who would crush the serpent's head and triumph over sin and death. He spoke of Jesus Christ. He spoke of the Savior and hope of all the world. Genesis 3 explains the problem. It explains the problems in your life. It is, in that sense, a very practical passage. We live in a world of toil because of humanity's rebellion against God and our alienation from Him. And this fall has radically and profoundly affected our daily work each one of us it's affected our work and what I want to do is consider together today some of the challenges of work so that we might receive help and hope through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and so last week we looked at the blessing and the gift of work as those created to work today I want to consider the challenges of work, And I know some of you might be thinking, like, you know, I could preach this sermon on the <laughs> challenges of work um, because I experience this every single day of my life. You, you feel like your life is, is this sermon, you know, in, in the flesh. Here's something, though, I want you that you may not have considered, uh, especially if your work is difficult. Okay, so if you're in a place where your work has been or is difficult, consider this at the outset. That the main challenge we face in our work is not in our environment, it is in our own hearts. The main challenge we face in our work. Some of you said you want some more hot sauce in sermons. Here you go. (laughs) The main challenge that we face in our work is not our work environment, it is our own hearts. Jesus would thrive in the same work situation in which we flounder. The difficulty would still be there, but there would be the presence of peace and joy and hope through it all. I must never forget. This is true of my work. My main difficulty with my work is myself. It's not outside me. It is the enemy within. Adam sinned, and now we are all inclined to sin. You may not be able to change your work situation. You likely won't be able to change other people however difficult they may be. But we can, by the grace of God, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by His grace working in our lives, we can change our perspective. We can change our hearts, which transforms work for God's glory. Okay, so here are four challenges to work in a fallen world. First is idealism. Idealism. In light of Genesis 3, In light of the the cursed ground, the thorns and thistles that cover the earth, which alters our productivity, which alters our experience of work, in light of Genesis 3, we need to seriously adjust our expectations for work. You are not going to find a job uh, or have a calling, whether it is employed or uh, a, a work in which you are not compensated for, You're not going to find a job without thorns and thistles. You're not going to find a job without many thorns and thistles. Your job is not going to be a Disney World experience. I guarantee you, it will include difficulty and groaning. It will include undesirable tasks. It will include difficult relationships. It will include pain and frustration. Your work at times will be unappreciated. Uh, You will experience the shame and insecurity of seeking to prove yourself. This is what God is saying in verse 17. Work is now painful toil. You can think of it this way. On this side of the fall, you will be put on hold for an hour. Uh, On this side of the fall, you're going to need to remove wallpaper. Uh, On this side of the fall, you will be subscribed to emails that you never subscribed to. (laughs) On this side of the fall, your computer will ask you to install updates every single day of your life. Um, You will not know your password. Your Wi-Fi connection will be bad. You will lose what you worked on. There will be unnecessary and unproductive meetings. Babies will scream. Kids will not pick up after themselves. You will lose your sanity trying to put together IKEA furniture. <laughs> you will get a flat tire. Insects will eat what you try to grow. And then insects will turn and eat you while you try to grow things. <laughs> we live, we live in a world of toil. There's a show called Dirty Jobs, it's hosted by Mike Rowe. Episodes include rattlesnake catching septic tank cleaning, and more. And he has uh, classifieds for people looking for a career change. So, for example, uh, he had a job listing for roadkill collector. It said, must be able to work long hours braving oncoming traffic while picking up creatures of various size and breed and in various states of decay. Benefits include working outdoors. Strong stomach, a plus. Not every job is that difficult. Not every job is that miserable. Yes, some jobs may be more desirable than others, but someone needs to do even the least desirable of jobs, and every job, every job has been affected by the fall. Much of the work that we do in this fallen world will be unpleasant and painfully difficult, and so I just want to exhort you to guard against the sort of idealism with which we can approach work and calling and vocation. If only I had that job. Oh, if only I had that company hire me. If only I had that promotion. One of the things I've seen is that sometimes career transitions can be driven by discontentment that is grounded in this kind of idealism. The grass always looks greener over there. Like over there, there don't appear to be any thorns and thistles. Friends, I guarantee you. There are thorns and thistles over there as well. Guard against idealism. A second challenge is idleness. Idleness. Some people can respond to the unpleasantness of work by seeking to avoid it. Uh, We can fall into thinking of work as a necessary evil, and then so it results in failing to steward our time and our talents and our jobs as we ought A passage that's most relevant here is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, where he gives a warning against idleness. And each one of us should hear this today as a word from God to us. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. The question each one of us should ask is this, where is sinful idleness most likely to appear in my life? Students walk in idleness when they fail to devote themselves to their studies. Employees walk in idleness when they Waste work hours on social media or on themselves. Bosses walk in idleness when they expect employees to work harder than they themselves do. We walk in idleness in the home when leisure and self-care and entertainment consume too much of our time. We walk in idleness when we embrace the world's idea of retirement. That is this idea of of an extended period of my life being marked by leisure and self-indulgence. Let us not walk in idleness, but be busy at work for the glory of God and for the good of others. Guard against idleness. Third, idolatry. So idealism, idleness, third, idolatry. Our culture is confused about work. It's fascinating if you think about this because we, we simultaneously undervalue it through idleness and overvalue it and overwork because we make work an idol. An idol is anything that we value above God. It is a false God that has captured our hearts and controls our lives. And there is no denying, particularly in our country, particularly here on the East Coast, uh, we we live in a work-obsessed culture that is infatuated with productivity and with efficiency and with success. Some of... (laughs) There's actually a point I was thinking about and I'm talking, when I was talking about idleness, the previous point. Some of you work tirelessly, but when I talked about idleness, you think, I know, I need to do so much more. Uh, you know, and, and the reality is, your problem is not idleness, it's the inability to be still. It's the inability to, to rest. It's the inability to relax. We, we've lost, so many of us, the ability to unplug from work. We've lost the ability to slow down and to enjoy the simple pleasures of life. We're always busy in ourselves, always overworking, either to catch up on work or to get ahead in work. And we demand more and more of each other and of ourselves. We live in this hurried, uh, we are a hurried, busy generation. This marks our lives and we find our identity and our worth in our work. Is so much of what is behind this drive. And it all stems back to the beginning and to man's fall into sin. In turning to work and making a false god out of work. You remember in Genesis 11, humans would exert themselves in their work towards building a monument to their own greatness. The Tower of Babel. It's because pride and glory seeking and idolatry have influenced our work. There's a Dilbert comic strip where uh, Dilbert's boss says on a Zoom call, uh, we're having another Zoom meeting at 4 p.m. Next box, Dilbert inquires, what's the topic? And his boss replies, it's about how I fill the deep emptiness of my soul by scheduling Zoom meetings. (laughs) And then in the last frame, Dilbert says, have you tried overeating? That seems to work for me. The deep emptiness of the soul. I- idolatry is filling the deep emptiness of your soul with anything other than God. Work is not meant to be the center of your life. Work is not meant to be worshipped. Work is an act of worship to the God who made us, the God who saved us. And so it needs to be said as loudly as possible that your value is Your identity is not found in career success or accomplishments. Your identity is not found in the role you play, in how far you move up the corporate ladder. Do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples when they were so excited about their ministry accomplishments? He says, Don't rejoice in your accomplishments, rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Here's something to celebrate. God has redeemed you. God has made you his own. And we need to always be on guard against taking work and and making that our greatest treasure, making that the wellspring of our soul, finding identity, finding value there. I have often, and I remind myself of this, being in pastoral ministry, when the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones reached the end of his life and could no longer preach, people said to him, on occasion, oh, you must be so sad and devastated that you can no longer preach. Because he was this great, mighty preacher of a, of a generation, massive influence throughout the world. Oh, you must be so sad, devastated that you can no longer preach. Do You know what Lloyd-Jones said in response? He said, no, no, not at all. I never lived on preaching. I lived on Christ. My treasure is not my, my work, even the work of ministry." Even the work of serving others and doing good to others. That's not my identity. That's not my life. Christ is my life. And the moment we make work the purpose of our life, we have created a false God. This this is what will bring order and proportion to everything in your life. It's having Christ at the center. It's having him as your greatest treasure. Christ and Christ alone must be the center of our lives and that's what keeps everything, whether it's work or rest or family or friendship, all of the aspects of our life, this is what keeps them in their proper place. And so be on guard against the idolatry that affects our work, finding our identity there and not in who we are in Christ. And then fourth and last challenge that we face in our work is incompletion. Incompletion. These verses in Genesis 3 end with a reminder of death. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I don't need to remind you of this, and the older saints among us can certainly affirm this to be true, that so many of our desires and so many of our dreams for our work in this life, go unfulfilled. Um, Incompletion. J.R.R. R. Tolkien has a, a short story that he wrote. It's called Leaf by Niggle, and it's an allegory of, of Tolkien's own creative process in his own life. Tim Keller actually talks about this in his book. The dictionary that Tolkien was a contributor to defined Niggle as this to work in a fiddling or ineffective way to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. And Tolkien wrote Leaf by Niggle during a time that he was stuck in not making any progress in his book, uh, The Lord of the Rings. This was his massive life work, worked on over the decades. And Tolkien said that the thought of not finishing this work was a dreadful and numbing thought. Now in this story, Niggle is a low, humble artist laboring in a world that does not value his work, but he's driven by this desire to create something beautiful. And he, his, his masterpiece is laboring on this giant, detailed landscape that has a large tree at the center. It began as a small leaf, but it expanded Uh, and was slowly expanding to include an entire world. He perseveres in his labor over time. He's on a ladder painting on this giant canvas. His work is often interrupted. He fears never completing it. Almost all of his time, in fact, is spent on this one leaf that he returns to and continues to work on again and again. He knew his time was limited, but he said, I will get this picture done. Before I have to go on that wretched journey. One day he becomes terribly sick, and men appear at the door saying it's time to go on a long journey. And in that moment, he bursts into tears. He did not want to go, but he's taken away. His life's work was to paint one beautiful leaf and to leave so much undone. It was put in a museum. Labeled just the, the, just the leaf, leaf by niggle. And we're told it was noticed by just a few eyes. But as Tolkien beautifully tells the story, that's not the end of the story. Because to his great surprise and joy, he's taken to a country. And there he sees a tree. And he runs to the tree. And we're told that before him stood the tree, his tree finished. Finished. And here it is complete, here it is three-dimensional, here it is glorious. And he joins in, molding the rest of the landscape, working day after day to create what had always been his dream. So many of the dreams we have for our work and for our lives, brothers and sisters, the things we longed to accomplish, we find ourselves incapable of completing. Our life doesn't have the impact we want it to have. Our labor seems so insignificant. Our dreams in art and in architecture, in preaching and in ministry, in justice and compassion for our vocations and businesses, all of it is not fully realized in this life. And that's where the Word of God comes to us and reminds us of something glorious. God reminds us that this world is not all there is. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And you need to, those of you who only have one leaf that you've gotten done, need to hear this. That in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is pointing to something lasting. Your labor is pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. There we will be clothed with glory and strength. There all tears will be wiped from our faces. There all the weariness and the pain that we presently know in our work will be no more and we will labor in a world without sin as God intended. Friends, you don't know. You don't know how long you have until that long journey must be taken. Come to Christ who can fill your life who can fill love and work and all of your life with such meaning and purpose. For those who are in Christ, every trial and every hardship you experience in your work is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. This life is but a breath and then comes the long tomorrow. Yes, we live in a Genesis 3 world, but we have an Isaiah 53 Savior and a Romans 8 salvation, and a Revelation 21 hope. And therefore, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary in doing good, even as we labor in a fallen world, a world of toil. The band can return. I want to share one more thing. That episode of the Wonder Years that I mentioned earlier closes with a beautiful scene when work was really bad, Kevin's dad would go out back and look at the stars in his, in his telescope. Maybe some of you should try that. And Kevin opens up the door. His dad is outside. It seems as if he's accustomed to his dad wanting to be left alone in those moments. But on this occasion, um, his dad, instead of being annoyed, calls him over. He says, hey, Kevin, come here. And Kevin looks through the telescope and his dad puts his hand on his son's shoulder and he says, that's Polaris, the North Star. That's how sailors used to find their way home. And then ends the episode. We're all seeking to find our way home. And God wants to remind his people today that however difficult your work presently is in this fallen world, you're gonna find your way home. You're gonna find your way home. The Lord is our shepherd He is with you in your work and our north star is this, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen and that Christ will come again. All our hope is in him. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.